I'm Kat Harris. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm an educator, brand strategist, and content creator. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface and to hold space for meaningful dialogue. It's a place where done is better than perfect, where quality triumphs quantity, and where the journey is the destination. So I invite you to leave your Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is messy and beautifully imperfect. We all have a story to tell, and I want to hear yours. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and you guys are in for just a, a ride today. I am so ex- excited. It's, it's not even the right word. Humbled, honored. Can't believe this amazing, incredible woman agreed to be on my podcast today. But t- today I get the honor of chatting with Austin Channing Brown. And if you do not know who this woman is, after today, I hope you buy her book. I hope you go see her speak. I hope you follow her on all the social medias because this woman has a message that the world needs to hear, that America needs to hear, that people need to hear. So before we get started, a little bit about who Austin Channing Brown is. She is a leading new voice on racial justice and author of I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And guys, this was the type of book that Every single page is underlined, highlighted, dog-eared. Every single person needs to read this book. Austin is committed to exploring the intersections of racial justice, faith, and Black womanhood. Her workshops are one of a kind, infused with justice, pop culture, humor, and truth-telling. Whether she's being interviewed, lecturing, or leading a workshop, Austin is sure to elicit a full range of emotions as she invites you to celebrate Blackness with her. Her first book released this May 2018, shooting to the top 20 of Amazon's bestsellers list. I'm Still Here has received acclaim from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and a host of other reviewers. Even Chelsea Clinton, Brene Brown, and Otis Moss III have tweeted about this memoir. Austin's writing can also be found in Sojourners Magazine, Relevant Magazine, Mutuality Magazine, and other places around the web. For a year, she wrote a column called Wild Hope for Today's Christian Woman, which is still accessible for readers. I'm Still Here has been featured in Religion News Service, On Being, the Chicago Tribune, Shonda Land, Pop Sugar, Relevant, Bitch Media, and more. Austin is excited to unpack the themes of I'm Still Here with her passionate readers. Book her to talk about racial justice, Black womanhood, or the writing process. Just know Austin holds no punches as she equally challenges and invites listeners through story. Austin attended North Park University, where she earned a degree in business management. She also has a master's degree in social justice from Mary Grove College in Detroit, Michigan. Since earning her master's, Austin has worked with nonprofits, churches, parachurch ministries, and universities in both the urban and suburban context for the advancement of racial justice and reconciliation. Most recently, she served as a resident director and multicultural liaison at Calvin College. There, she was able to work with and learn from millennials for three years as they navigated college life. Austin misses living in Chicago, but is making Grand Rapids home with her husband, Tommy, their son, and spoiled puppy. So guys, get comfortable, take out a journal, write notes, and get ready to learn some amazing truth bombs from Austin Cheney Brown. Austin, how's it going today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing so good. I'm so grateful that Instagram connected us. <laughs> I know. Isn't the internet just like a weird, strange thing? Social media is bringing people together. It really is. And I like, I have this like love hate relationship with Instagram and social media. Yeah. I'm like, I could like literally throw away my computer and move to like the Amazon and like (laughs) bring my children in the jungle and be okay. (laughs) And then there's like this other moments like this where I'm like, I get to connect with another person in the universe because of it. So, oh, I won't lie. I am having a complete love affair with social media, but it's because of things like this. Like Mm. where else would someone in Grand Rapids and someone in New York just have like this random connection and be chatting, you know? I think someone 
tagged you on a comment on my yes feed, but I instantly, <laughs> instantly, I I went rogue on your account. <laughs> <laughs> I like ordered your book as soon as I found your account. And then I got deep. Like I went all the way back down. I saw this one post you had about you did a workshop like a Beyonce and Faith workshop. And I was like, okay, Austin is my new best friend. I need to hear everything about this person. (laughs) I love it. Beyonce also bringing people together. Yes, baby, Queen (laughs) B, Queen B. I will admit to you that I cried at the Beyonce concert when she sang Whitney Houston acapella. Oh. She's my favorite. Her evolution has just been so much fun to watch. Yeah, we could do a whole show about her. We, we, really, could. we really We could do a couple of shows mean, about I, her. People are probably so sick of me because I bring everything back to Beyonce. I'm like, <laughs> oh, we were talking about how to change a tire. Well, that reminds me of this one time, <laughs> Beyonce. <laughs> Listen, the people need to know. The people need to know. So maybe just like in a nutshell, what was your Beyonce and Faith workshop about? And can you do it again? (laughs) I hope so. So I did it for a Faith and Music themed conference. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because uh, the organizer was like, so is there something you could do? And he's just, you know, a friend. And I thought... Well, I don't know what, like, I'm not a music connoisseur, you know, like, I don't know. I like Chance and Beyonce, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if I could lead a workshop on it. And then I was like, wait, Beyonce just dropped Lemonade. Surely there is something I can find mm-hmm. <laughs> Lemonade mm-hmm. that would resonate. And so my workshop is called Beyonce Takes Us to Church. Yes. And essentially what I do is unpack the visual album that she did. Mm -hmm. And so I pull out the references to religion, which the album is packed with. Mm-hmm. And it gives me an opportunity to, you know, she, she, she just covers so much ground. So it's an opportunity to talk about love. It's an opportunity to talk about Serena Williams and why yes. featuring Serena was so important. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about grandparents and our history um, because, you know, she mentioned so much about her own grandparents and even Jay-Z's um, mother. And so... Yeah, the the whole album is just really an opportunity to talk about Black womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because there were so many people who were like, I don't get it. Right? Like they watched it and they're like, it's beautiful, but I don't understand it. Um, yeah. So it really I, gave me an opportunity to sort of unpack it and say this, all these references have to do with Black women. <laughs> yes. And the thing that I think is so incredible about Beyonce, well, I think there's a, a million things that are amazing about her, <laughs> but she is so committed to excellence in her yes. craft, which yes. I think is such a reflection of the gospel. I think that it can feel like, oh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus means like get all these people to bow their heads and pray a prayer, mm-hmm. which it can also mean that. But if God came to make all things new and to redeem and restore the universe, mm-hmm. then what does that mean to be a redemptive voice in the music industry? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a redemptive and restorative and also creative voice yes. in the finance world, in the in the law world, if that's what it's even called? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I'm not in the law world, um, but to like she's she's so committed to her craft and it's committed true. to excellence and innovation and pushing the envelope. Like she's doing what yeah. no one else is doing, and I think that's what made it so special. Cat is because she didn't just like kind of feature black women, right? Mm-hmm. She wrote a lyric that said. She's proud of her Jackson 5 nose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like she went all the way there yeah. um, so creatively with such beauty and perfection and weaving so many references together. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it honestly is probably my favorite workshop mm-hmm. that I've done. Well, yeah. Whenever you want to come to New York and do that, you are welcome. Let's book it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did. I got asked to speak at a women's Bible study and my whole talk was started off a line from Lemonade where she says, um, I found the truth beneath your eyes. True love never has to hide. 
And so I was like, good. let me tell you something about love. Like true love never has to hide. Like that is so true. Um, so maybe we can do a joint Beyonce workshop. Yes. <laughs> Here for that. Here for it. Oh, it's so good. Well, I want to kind of dive into your book. Um, I'm still here. It's impacted me so much. And I think every single person on the planet should read it. And I just, I know you're a new mother. Your little baby is one now. And yes, there um, might be bounds between him and the dog. (laughs) (laughs) He might make an appearance. (laughs) I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't hate it. (laughs) Um, What I'm curious about is has being a mother, because we, I, I know the process of writing a book. Like you didn't just like, I want to write a book. And, <laughs> and it came out two months later. Like you've right. probably been working on this for several years. Mm-hmm. And in that process, you became pregnant. You had a child and now your child is one. Right. Has being a mother changed your conviction at all about being a voice for Black Dignity? I think it will. Um, the truth is um, I had to take a year off from reading the headlines and mm. from watching the videos and um, my, my heart could not take it mm. um, because it was too real. You know, like it's, it's mm. always been real and that's why I write the way that I do. Um, but it was so overwhelming um, now that I have a son to mm. read about someone else's little boy dead in the street or, mm. you know, and, So I'm just now honestly getting back into those hard stories and those hard places, but it does, I I can tell you, it feels completely different. And I didn't Mm -hmm. think that was possible Mm -hmm. um, because I have a black father and a black brother and a black husband and, you know, like, like I am, you know, black through and through. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, definitely having now this little boy that I'm responsible for protecting um, Mm. has taken everything to a new level. Man. And tell me, walk me through a little bit the response that you've gotten from your book. I'd love to hear like, what is there like an overwhelming response from the black community that you're getting? Is there an overwhelming response from the white people? Are you getting haters? Are you getting lovers? Like, yeah. Oh, so I have plenty of people who are like, she's the real racist, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you go to those Amazon reviews and click on everyone who gave it a one star. um, (laughs) Oh haters gonna, here's what I think is like haters gonna hate and when you oh, have haters listen. it's proof that you're on the right track you know they you know funny enough the terrible reviews were the first ones that I got mm. um, because Amazon has a program where you can get comments on your book early because they send it out to just people who are who offer really good commentary period oh. on books. And so my book first did not go to friends, did not go to people who love me. You know, my mm-hmm. book first went to complete strangers. Awesome. And um, <laughs> <laughs> the reviews didn't look great in uh, January before the book released, you know, oh <laughs> five oh, months man. later. <laughs> You're like, calling your mom, call your aunt, right. call your sister. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> Um, And, you know, my husband looked at me and he said, Austin, would you change one word? Like, is Mm -hmm. there anything that you would change so that this reviewer would like the book? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so I just had to live with the terrible reviews for about five months. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, the book released into the world and I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. I really had envisioned... Um, one, I had envisioned my book not reaching a black audience mm. um, because the sort of like Christian evangelical publishing world can be so white, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the white people who got a hold of it would put this puppy back on the shelf after they read the first sentence, mm. right? So I was like, maybe I should not have done this. Uh, maybe. <laughs> because one of the first sentences, I mean, the very opening page of the book is like, white people are the worst. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I thought, Kat. But then I, I realized that maybe that's not fun for everybody. Mm. Um, so all that to say, I have been so pleasantly surprised that white folks have found this book to be extraordinarily helpful mm-hmm. um, and that it has reached black women, particularly 
black um, folks who are the only one, mm. you know, who are the only one in their office, the only one in their church, the only, you know, um, or who are a part of multiracial or predominantly white churches, colleges, conferences, and and have just like I, I regularly get like messages or Instagram or, you know, sort of those kinds of updates um, that say this book was so affirming. Mm, and yeah. that makes my heart so happy. And every now and again, I even get a black parent who will say that the book was helpful for them mm. and they can't wait to give it to their daughter. Mm. And that is everything. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the response has been um, uh, far beyond what I could have predicted. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. mean, it, it, it's, it's one of those books that I remember you and I were emailing back and forth because we connect on we connected on Instagram and then I was like I want you on my podcast right I remember I was like mm, you might want to read the book first You're like I don't know do you I was like that's really sweet but did you read past the first sentence I appreciate that and all but do you know that I think you're really exhausting. <laughs> I mean, I've been told that by a lot of different people. So, <laughs> a lot of different what reasons. Really funny is that um, the white people who love this book also laugh at that line, right? So, of course, people of color laugh at that line. But oh my gosh. white people who know they're exhausting are like, "Yep, uh, yeah, <laughs> I sure mm-hmm. am." Well, <laughs> or, actually, or my uncle sure is. Oh yeah, you're like, "Yep, been around that person." Right? Honestly, like reading that sentence reminded me of the very first podcast episode of the Refined Collective. I interviewed one of my dear friends, Nakia Phoenix, and we talked about like race and reconciliation Mm. and diversity. And I shared with her this story that now I'm like, oh my gosh, I was being exhausting. I think (laughs) (laughs) Um, I shared with her like this story when I was in elementary school and one of my best friends was a black girl mm-hmm. and like, I didn't know we were different oh, and I see. her and I went to the bathroom together and she was curling her bangs with a pencil. Got it. So I was like, give me your pencil. I want to curl my bangs. <laughs> and I was trying to curl my bangs and nothing would happen. And I was right. like, how come my bangs won't curl? And she's like, you just got to. And she like was trying to do it. And neither of us could figure out why my bangs weren't curling <laughs> like so hers. funny. <laughs> I love it. it. It like to me was this like moment of innocence. But yeah. now looking back, I'm like, if she was the only black girl in the class. She for sure knew we were different. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I'm this white girl who I'm I have a privilege. Right. And I don't notice right, it. Right, right, right. Like in that right there is the thing, right? <laughs> like Yeah, that's that was that's what repeats itself over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Yeah. Whereas it can feel like, oh, that's a moment of like kids are so innocent. But like, if you were in that moment, like, what would that have felt like to you? Right. Right. Yeah. So now that we've established why people are exhausting, <laughs> um, you say something in your book that I would, I want to do unpack with you. Um, yeah. You say when an organization confuses diversity or inclusion with reconciliation and often it often shows up in an obsession with numbers. Mm-hmm. How many black people are in the photo? Does our publication have enough stories written by people of color? But without people of color in key positions, influencing topics, whatever diversity is included is still essentially white. It just adds people of color like sprinkles on the top. The cake is still vanilla. Yeah. So I read that and I was like, that is honestly what our culture feels like right now. I mean, you look at any ad campaign and it's like the United Colors of Benetton, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like we, and I have some girlfriends here in the city that are models that are like ethnically ambiguous. And so they're like, yeah, I'm glad I'm being casted in more jobs now, but I know why it is. And so maybe the customer base still isn't for black women, but it's like they're quote unquote doing their due diligence. That's right. That's right. And that feels so, awful. Like, and I don't think, I think there's this yeah. perception that black folks are like carrying, like are literally carrying a race card in their back pocket and they get to a mm-hmm. job and they're like, Ooh, will you take this for money? Like, can I get paid for this? Mm-hmm. 
And like no black person wants to be hired because they're black. We are like whole human beings. I am talented, people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that mm-hmm. is why I should be hired. Yeah. You know? And so that it can be really frustrating um, when when the assumption is that I'm happy to be the number, right? Like that's that's all that matters. Um, as opposed to really wanting to feel a sense of belonging and wanting to be wanted because I'm Austin, not because mm-hmm. I'm a black girl. Right. It's objectifying. It is. And it's re- and, yes. And it's it's reductive, right? It assumes mm-hmm. that we are all the same and that I don't bring anything unique to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember once I <laughs> I was interviewing for a job and mm-hmm. um, it was one of those interviews where you like meet with this group and then you meet with that department and then you meet this pastor and then you write like a gazillion interviews. Like by the end, mm-hmm. you've actually done like mm-hmm. 17 interviews. And I walked up to this guy and he was like, oh my gosh, I bet you're like really good at spoken word. Oh gosh. <laughs> it was like, actually, if you knew me, you would know that I can't memorize anything to save my life. <laughs> like, now I'm a good speaker, but to assume that I could recite and perform a poem on stage, that would be incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's, that's the kind of like reductive, like, you don't know anything about me. Like we're, right. we're meeting right now. Right. It's like <laughs> such an assumption. Right. So how do you go from, like, I hear that when you're saying like, when you said it's like adding sprinkles to the top of vanilla cake, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, that is like so true until I at the refined woman have black women on my team that are influencing the topics I create. Like that that's makes right. total sense. So how, like, what would you say? Like, how do you build that from top down from a church, from a small business without falling into a numbers game and without being like, oh, well, here's the token black girl. Like yeah. we have the token black woman or man in the yeah. boardroom or on the board of directors or helping totally. make decisions. Like it just seems like I know there has to be a way, yeah. but it just seems like it's so easy just to like check, check, like and I hate saying that, but it just seems... Oh, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's honest. And I think if we're not being honest in these conversations, then nothing changes, mm-hmm. right? So, I, you know, I, I think there are lots of things. There, are, I think there are lots of answers to that question. I think the, the, if I had to choose one word that this has a tendency to boil down to, it's power. Mm. And ultimately, um, so... Uh, so I work with a lot of Christian colleges. So let me use that as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of Christian colleges are predominantly white and they have been predominantly white for a long, long time. Right. In mm-hmm. fact, most of them were established with white people in mind. <laughs> right? yeah. like, like it's the, it's the Swedish school or it's the Dutch school or it's the, you know what I mean? Like, like really for white folks. <laughs> it was just, it was made in America and America. Do you know what I'm like... saying? Also that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have a tendency to forget, right? That at one point in American history, black folks were not allowed to go to college with white folks. Like mm-hmm. that, that was like a whole era. And it wasn't too far away from it now. It was not. It really yeah. wasn't. My grandmother is sitting in my living room right now. And when she went to college, it was not called a historically black college. It was just the black college. Mm. So what happens is you have a, a college, a university that was established primarily for white folks. And so their board was white and their presidents have been white and their faculty was white and their students of color, their students were white, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it just was, it just was. And that became normal. Right. And an entire culture was developed around whiteness. So the artists, the curriculum, the photos, the art, you know, like the names Mm -hmm. of the buildings, right? Everything then also reflects whiteness. Mm. But you fast forward through history, right? And now people of color are welcome, but people of color who come are expected to maintain the culture that already is. Yeah. Right? Not to change the culture. Um, so I remember being in school and never going to chapel services hmm. because the chapel services didn't reflect me. We didn't hmm. sing songs that I sang in church. 
We, you know, that there was just, there was very little about it that felt quote unquote black. Mm-hmm. And so um, we started essentially lobbying <laughs> for um, more diversity in our chapel services. And we didn't just want songs. We wanted someone who understood how gospel music worked. Mm. Right. We, un- we wanted someone who could infuse Spanish mm. into the songs, right? Like we, we, um, we didn't just want the university to like placate and just give us a couple sprinkles. Right. Right. We wanted them to hire someone with the influence, with the power to actually change how our chapel services sounded. Mm-hmm. That's the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Usually what happens is they would hire a person of color who sings the exact same songs that we always been singing, mm-hmm. not hiring a person of color who would actually change the culture of those services. Got it. So it's it's not just like, well, today or it's Black History Month, so we're going to have a spoken word it. today. You got it. What would it look like every Friday? Mm-hmm. What would it look like for us to never have a chapel service where we don't sing at least one uh, Black hymn? What would it look mm-hmm. like to make sure that there's always two or three Spanish songs or that we sing the song in English and then we sing it in Spanish? Mm-hmm. And that is how we function. Like mm-hmm. That is a normal part of our service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that becomes the question. Are you giving... Does does the person you're inviting to the table have power and influence to bring themselves and to make those who look like them feel just as much a sense of belonging as those who have always been there? Mm. And do you feel hopeful that that could happen in our country? Like during your lifetime, like, do you feel hopeful about the eradication of racism and white supremacy in our country? Like, what does that feel like to you? No. I really wanted to like think about that. <laughs> yeah. And you I didn't really even hesitate. You're like, I, I know. know. I was like, mm. you know what I was waiting for? Honestly, I was waiting for you to finish the question because, <laughs> <laughs> um, because there are places, there are moments, mm. there are institutions, there are people for whom I'm hopeful. Mm. Um, But if I broaden it out to the entire country, Mm -hmm. I have zero evidence Mm. that by the time my son is grown that he won't have to deal with this. Yeah. So what does it feel like to continue on in your mission? Because you you say you don't have hope. And honestly, when I ask that question, like, it feels so daunting to me as well. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't know if that can change. Right. Like, I think our country thought, well, we, you know, Barack Obama, we had a black president, so you know, everything is fine now. <laughs> like, yep. and yep. it's like, let's brush everything else under the rug, and there's no problem. Yeah. And it's, I have felt discouraged as a white woman. Like, right. what? Like, right. it, it doesn't feel like there's hope, but but still with like this tiny morsel of maybe a little bit of hope, like you still keep moving on. Like you are still writing this book. You are still, you, I think your um, like free discussion guide is coming out in a few weeks. Like, so you don't feel hope, but yet you're still moving forward. Like, yeah. What's that like? I feel like I don't have the luxury of, Mm. so, so I think uh, first, I think we have to do maybe a better job at, even defining what we mean by hope, Mm. right? And so the way that I interpret that question is people asking me, do I really honestly in my bones think that the country is going to change? No, Mm. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I mean, maybe in like another, yeah, I don't know. I was going to try and put a number on it. I got (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yet I do wake up with some level of hope, like you said, and and that I do believe that people are changing, Mm -hmm. right? So do I think the whole system is changing? Mm -hmm. Not yet. Um, But do I think people are being changed? Churches are being changed. Presidents of universities are being changed. Podcasters are being changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do. And so... Um, but I just don't feel like I have the luxury of being able to be like hopeful and optimistic and mm. sunshiny and 
you know, like whether I feel sunshiny or not, I still have work to do. Right. You know, um, it would, it feels, I, I, um, my grandmother has been very, very generous with me in sharing our family history and thank God for ancestry.com as well, um, which has contributed. Yeah. Lots of like evidence, um, to our family history. And so, um, I have photos of my ancestors, some of whom were enslaved, um, Mm. or like writings, like notes that, um, we've been able to find. And, um, it feels, it would feel like a slap in the face, I think, to Mm. sit in my house and look at their photos and be like, well, I'm not doing anything because I don't feel hopeful. Like what? (laughs) I think not, not, not to the ancestor who survived, you know, lynchings, who survived slavery, who survived sitting in the back of the bus, who survived. Mm. Like, no, no, no. (laughs) I have, I have work to do whether I feel great or not. Like that is such a privilege. My privilege is being free. Mm. Right. My privilege is not only having to work if I feel sunshiny and Mm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think of that, I think of like, like this, like a, like a a burning house Mm. and then like, you're like, you know, people have come out, you've been rescued from the fire. And then like someone asks you like, do you think the fire is going to be out? <laughs> like, I don't know. I the no fire's still going. That is like, I hope so. so. Good. But in the meantime, I'm going to grab this fire hose is what I'm right. going to do. Like, why, and why don't you grab some water too? Listen, let's see. Let's find out. Let's, let's find, find out. out together. That should be my answer from now on. <laughs> Let us find <laughs> out see. if we could let's eradicate racism. Yeah. Let's- and I think even what you're saying too is like, I, I go back to the gospel and the God story of like, does systematic racism need to end? Yes. 100%. But I think change starts with the one Yep. and God goes after the one. And that's what came up for me when you were saying is I'm like, it has to matter. Right. Like it's why I vote. It's Mm -hmm. like, I have some friends and family that they're like, I'm not going to vote. My vote doesn't matter. And I'm like, if it doesn't, then why are we here? Hello. Like if the one doesn't matter, then what are we doing? Yeah. And, so and, I, and I think we have to own whatever our power or influence is. And I think that's a trap that we fall into sometimes. We're like, but I don't run the organization, but I don't, you're right. I'm not the president. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, sure, but you work there. So what do you have influence over, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and start, start there. And, and the more you speak up, the more you will find others who care too. Mm-hmm. And, and then you won't be doing it by yourself. And I think that invites hopefulness too, right? When you are no longer the one who is mm-hmm. seeking change, but you know, you've got a friend over in that department and you've got your coworker over here and you've got your mm-hmm. fellow podcaster over there and, you know, and you begin to see change happening, and that it breeds the desire to see and experience more, to go further, to push harder, um, and to know that you're doing it together. Yeah. I mean, even when you're saying that, I like, I feel this like sense of responsibility in you. Like, even when you're like, I don't, I don't feel hope. Like, but yet again, you like that Maya Angelou poem, Still I Rise. Yes. Like, that comes to my mind is like, you're like, still I rise. Like, no matter what, like, still I rise. Like, I keep on going. Like, don't Absolutely. be threatened by me. Like, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still I'm here. Doing this. <laughs> still here. <laughs> um, but you talk about in the book, like, this, this experience that you've had a lot and you said like a lot of black people have of mm-hmm. it's like you become like the, the token like right. spokesperson for like the entire black community. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like, that's not your role. Right. But yet here you like, here you are like writing this book <laughs> and speaking on this. And then like, do you, even in like this interview and all the interviews you're doing, like, mm-hmm. do you feel like that's, even though that's not what you want, that's like what you're doing at times? Well, that's a good question. So yes and no. Um, it's really hard to put the black community into words because there are things that are so similar about the black diaspora, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that are the reason why we call ourselves the black community. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yet 
our interests and backgrounds and upbringing and is so different and unique that you almost think, well, what does it mean to be Black, right? Like that could be a whole book. I'm sure people have written books about what it means mm-hmm. to be Black. So um, so it, it is a, the, uh, like a the balance beam, right? Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I decided to write this book as a memoir mm-hmm. because I am only telling my story, yeah. right? And I'm only telling what I learned. Mm-hmm. And then other Black folks can then enter in and say, ooh, I had this happen to me too, mm-hmm. right? Or I've never experienced that before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I, I try really hard to stay away from saying this is how all Black people experience the world and saying this is how I experience the world mm-hmm. as a little girl who spent a lot of time around white folks. Mm-hmm. And right. And and maybe that will be similar for other people and maybe it mm-hmm. won't. But here's but I offer you my story. Right. right to begin with. Um, and hope that it becomes sort of a foundation then for figuring out um, the people of color in your life. Are they, have they experienced the same thing? Is it different? Is it similar? Um, and so it just gives people a starting place, I think, as opposed to um, this is how it is. Right. Almost like you're in this room mm-hmm. and it's like, it's dark in there. Right. And then you kind of turn on your little candle and you're like, hey, this is what I've experienced. This is what my life has been like. And I think the biggest thing about like fear, like fear's agenda is to keep us like small, hidden, stuck. That's like, right. That's you know? right. And it's like, well, if I share this, like what are people going to think? Or oh, yeah. like I don't want to like be responsible. I don't I want to be responsible for like the whole black community. What if I what That's if I right. say this wrong? Or, That's right. But like. And I think it's it's at least what it seems like you're experiencing is that people are coming out of the woodworks, like lighting their candles and like, yeah, like actually this was my experience or I had a really different experience. But now that you brought that up, it reminded me of this. Yes. Like, yeah. That's what story does. It's exactly. like this wildfire. Exactly. And so the goal isn't to tell one story and for mm-hmm. my story to be the story. The goal is to open the door to many stories. Mm. But it takes someone going there first. Yeah. 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 This episode of the Refined Collective Podcast is brought to you by Austin Channing Brown's discussion guide for her book, I'm Still Here. Now, if you haven't read I'm Still Here, no worries. Just hop on Amazon right now and you can order it. That simple. Next, go to therefinedwoman.com slash Austin, spelt like the city. Again, that's the refinedwoman.com slash Austin, like the city. And you'll be able to click directly to get her free discussion guide that she created for people to go through this book in community. When I was reading the book a couple months ago, there were so many questions I had, and I just wanted to be able to talk with other people about it and even navigate my own racial biases and things that were coming up for me. So because of that, Austin created this discussion guide for people. On top of that, she created a video series that I cannot wait to watch. It will also be linked in therefinedwoman.com slash Austin. People like Lecrae and Jen Hatmaker will be on the video series as well. It's going to be incredible. Guys, get on the I'm Still Here bandwagon, and I cannot wait to journey through this with you guys. And you you talk about this high school teacher you had and an experience with this Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, We Wear yeah. the Mask. And I, would you like unpack that story um, for the audience? That was such a profound moment yeah. of your book for me. Yeah. So um, I went to a pretty large high school. It was predominantly white, but I would say that um, at the time that I was there it was still probably like 20% black. So mm-hmm. enough of us to fill up a couple lunch tables. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> And so there were some classes I had where there were many of us and there were some classes that I had where I was the only one. So I was sort of moving in and out of sort of these racial dynamics all day. Um, But there was one class, my English class, where I think I was the only one. Um, And my uh, English teacher was super delightful. Um, And one of the really unique things that he did was blended 
um, a lot of diversity into the curriculum, which I hadn't really experienced before. Um, and so we learned, you know, about Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe and, you know, all the heavy hitters that you would expect mm-hmm. to learn about, right? But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he would just introduce um, Black authors and he'd be like, whoa, wait, <laughs> how do you know about this person, right? <laughs> like, um, and it was wonderful. And so I remember him giving us this poem called We Wear the Mask. And um, I grew up with an English teacher in the house. So I knew Paul Lawrence Dunbar's name as soon as I saw it. Like, what do you um, know about Paul right, Lawrence Dunbar? Right. I was like, what? Like, you're not just going to pull out Maya Angelou, you know, like Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Okay. Teacher. <laughs> um, but as I actually like read the poem, I was like, oh my goodness. I thought, is this me? Am I wearing a mask? Like I went into this immediate existential crisis. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. <laughs> this poem was written in like hundreds of years ago. And I am wondering if this is me right now. Mm. Um, and I... um. I was floored, I I think, on a number of levels. One, because it had been such a rare experience for me to feel so close to the curriculum, Hmm. right? Usually I had to do the work of interpretation and, um, you know, who doesn't like Shakespeare, but it takes me a you know, that's a big jump for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and lots of other places. I don't know why Shakespeare is coming to mind, I guess, you know, because <laughs> universal, right? But, um, but to sit and read words that I was like, whoa, this is, this is all me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not ignoring um, references to sandy hair, and write references to rosy cheeks and Mm. write like the work that I would usually have to do in order to put myself in the story, right? I am reading something that is about me, about my experience. Mm. That was the first thing. And then the second thing was that my teacher expected all the white students in the class to engage, Mm. you know, that they didn't get a pass. They didn't just get to read it and clap and move on to the next thing that just like we had to explore Shakespeare, Shakespeare, and just like we had to understand the language of Edgar Allan Poe and just write the same level of um, study that went into these other authors. My teacher expected the white students to explore. So when was this written and who do you think he was talking to and what does the mask mean? And I was just like, oh my gosh, is this happening? Um, And I got scared that my teacher would expect me to explain to all of my white classmates how black Mm. people sometimes wear a mask so that white people don't know what we're thinking. Awkward. Yeah. Like so much pressure. So much pressure. I like 14. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm so grateful that he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He only called on people who like raised their hands and I didn't raise my hand. Um, And, um, and I was grateful. I was grateful that he didn't make me the temporary substitute teacher on race. Mm -hmm. You know, which I feel like is often what happens when a white teacher does introduce diversity into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's like, so Austin, what do you think about that? (laughs) Right. As opposed to the teacher feeling the responsibility to involve everyone and to know enough about the piece to be able to engage students in that way. Hmm. So it was a real gift. It was a real, real gift. Yeah. And I wonder, even when you're sharing what your teacher did, which... I mean, pro- like, I just want to clap for him. Way to go. Like, I know. I know. But I remember reading this article um, called To Hell With Good Intentions. Mm. Have you read that? I have not, but I like that title. Oh, it is so good. Um, but I I used to be in the nonprofit world. And um, right out of college, I worked for a company that did work in northern Uganda. Mm. And um, before we got to travel to Uganda, they gave us like books like oh, White Man's Burden, King Leopold's Ghost, yep. and yep. To Hell with Good Intentions. Got and, it. You know, all these different things. But um, this this article, To Hell with Good Intentions, talks all about like how people do things with the quote unquote right heart. That's right. But it actually doesn't matter nope. if you have good intentions, if like it's creating like destruction. Hello. And so like even when you're saying like, I wonder if sometimes like teach like a white teacher in that setting would be like, 
oh, it's probably the quote unquote right thing to do to give the one black person in the room the floor right now. Mm -hmm. Like they're thinking they're actually doing a good thing. Right. When it's pressure and also like making that person the black spokesperson of the community. And it just makes me wonder about like intentions and like, how do we, it's like assumption. Like we're assuming like this would probably be the best way to make you feel good about what we're doing right now. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I think, (laughs) I think, I think sometimes white people forget that black people are fully human. Mm. Like we don't just suddenly become all our race because you decided Mm. to introduce diversity into the curriculum, you know? Mm. Um, so what is, what is the personality of the students in your class? Mm. You know, do they usually engage? Did they usually mm. raise their hand? Do they, you know what I mean? Because for some students, it might have been really empowering. Mm-hmm. But I think my teacher knew me well enough to know that if I wanted to talk, I would have. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if I really thought I had something to say, I would have put my hand up and I would have been real clear about whatever my thought was. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think if you decide to diversify and you have students of color who want to engage or that one student who's like, oh, I have a story about this or I'd like to share about this, that's fantastic. But to go in with the assumption that your student wants to be the spokesperson Mm -hmm. is not helpful. Yeah. And I think it stops the the teacher from doing from going all the way, right? Mm-hmm. So introducing the topic is one thing, but actually learning about it yourself, studying about it yourself, so that you could teach it if there was no person of color in your classroom. Right. It's like right? a it's like a shortcut, like how yeah. like it's like learning all the material. Exactly. Like, well, let me just exactly exactly right like Like, go all the way just Mm -hmm. like you would for anything else you know Mm -hmm. so my assumption and I've never asked him this but my assumption is that my teacher had all white classrooms if Mm -hmm. I was the only one in that one class then I have to assume that there were a couple classes where there were no students of color Mm -hmm. right I don't think he changed the curriculum based on whether or not he has students of color in the room Mm. So I assume he put out the Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, whether I was sitting in the room or not. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so he had to take responsibility for knowing when that poem was written, who was Paul Lawrence Dunbar, right? Like he had to do all the work because Mm -hmm. there were no guarantees that there would be a student of color in his classroom. So that could be his quote unquote crutch, his proverbial crutch. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a part in your book that I would love for you to read Absolutely. Um, and kind of as we like wrap this up, I feel like we could talk for like 10 hours. <laughs> getting started. <laughs> um, but it's on page 116 and 117 and yeah, I'd love you to read it and then we can chat about it. Happily. The moment Black Americans achieved freedom from enslavement, America could have put to death the idea of Black inferiority but whiteness was not prepared to sober up from the drunkenness of power over another people group. Whiteness was not ready to give up the ability to control, humiliate, or do violence to any black body in the vicinity, all without consequence. Ultimately, the reason we have not yet told the truth about this history of black and white America is that telling an ordered history of this nation would mean finally naming America's commitment to violent, abusive, exploitative, immoral white supremacy, which seeks the absolute control of black bodies. It would mean doing something about it. How long will it be before we finally choose to connect all the dots? How long before we confess the history of racism embedded in our systems of housing, education, health, criminal justice, and more? How long before we dig to the root because it is the truth that will set us free? Sadly, too many of us in the church don't live like we believe this. We live as if we are afraid acknowledging the past will tighten the chains of injustice rather than break them. We live as if the ghosts of the past will snatch us if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So instead, we walk around the valley, talk around the valley. We speak of the valley with cute euphemisms. We just have so many divisions in this country. If we could just get better at diversity, we'd be so much better off. 
we are experiencing some cultural changes. Our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. Man, that's one of the pages in the books where like literally every single line is underlined mm -hmm. with notes on it for me. Um, what, what comes up for you when you read that out loud? Oh man, so many things. <laughs> All the things. <laughs> so many things. Um, one is just the importance of knowing our history. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it's so funny that in America we think history is so important when it comes to Lincoln or Washington mm. or, right? Like we have monuments and statues and every student has to learn the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, like we have mm. history classes like forever. <laughs> um, and so on the one hand, we so respect history and understand history's importance. And yet on the other, we have decided to relinquish the truth. We have decided not to tell the whole truth. Mm. Um, we have decided that the pain is too much to bear, that it's not important, that we don't need to know it. Um, and so I wish that the level of importance we give to the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> you know, that we would extend to telling everybody's history. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's the first thing. And then... Mm -hmm. I think the second thing is um, mm, I think the second thing is that I really, really believe that when we begin to tell the truth, we give ourselves the greatest opportunity for eradicating racism. Hmm. I think when we talk about the criminal justice system, Right, that when we tell the truth, we give ourselves the best opportunity for eliminating the disproportionate racism. Mm -hmm. Right, I think when we really begin to tell the history of um, of medicine and of healthcare in this country, mm -hmm. that we'll have a better understanding for why Black women are at such greater risk when they give birth. Mm -hmm. Right, and that we give ourselves the opportunity to fix it, to change it to review our policies, to review our assumptions, to, um, to really make change. And so, mm -hmm. but, but that's hard to do when you won't go all the way back to the beginning, you mm -hmm. know, when you're afraid of the valley. Um, and I think we, there are some of us who don't have the luxury of, of being afraid. Like we right. have to do it even if we're afraid mm -hmm. um, and it's painful, you know, it's not fun. It's not fun to revisit mm -hmm. um, black history in particular. Um, but if we don't, then we don't fully understand how the problem started, how it's been perpetuated and therefore how we can stop it. Mm -hmm. It's like going back to um, like our stories of origin. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we understand this principally in like mm -hmm. every novel ever written. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, where the protagonist is on a quest for the truth, a quest mm -hmm. to understand their history, a quest to understand why their parents gave them up, a quest to understand, you know, what happened to their parents, the quest, mm -hmm. to right? Like we get it, we get yeah. it, but we're yeah. afraid to do it in mm -hmm. our real lives. Yeah. It, it reminds me of my, that same nonprofit I worked for. Um, one of my old bosses used to say to know all is to forgive all. Mm. And she meant that in the context we were doing um, like awareness for this um, conflict in Uganda and traveling all over the U S living out of a van mm -hmm. with like three other people. And more so like she meant, Hey, when you're living that close with people, they're going to drive you crazy. But when <laughs> right. you know where they're coming from, you're like, oh, that's oh, why that's you good. do that super annoying thing. Like, <laughs> it's right. not always to forgive all. But it feels like the same concept of, um, like, I have to be willing to be curious, curious enough about 
someone other than myself. Right, 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 right. Someone, something other than my own experience. That's right. That's right. And to realize that our experiences at some point are connected, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I hear white people say a lot is um, like, well, I didn't have slaves, right? Mm -hmm. Like my family didn't own slaves. We weren't even in America yet, Mm -hmm. you know? And and that may be that may be true, right? But it's mm-hmm. still important to know because the reason that segregation existed is because slavery existed. Right. Right. And so if your grandparents came here during segregation, it's still important for you to understand why that system was in place. Right. That allowed white folks to earn wealth in a way that black folks could not earn wealth. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's just so important because all of our stories are tied together Mm -hmm. at one point or another. But when we go back to the beginning, that helps us understand how we got here. Yeah. Yeah. It when I think something that I hear a lot of my white friends saying um, is I'm not racist. I mean, mm-hmm. you should you should hear my grandpa talking. I'm like, <laughs> I am like nothing. Like, I am right. not racist. Like my grandpa was. And so like <laughs> then or like, I mean, yeah, my grandpa or you know, aunt and uncle, they were super racist. My mom is a little racist, but I am not at all compared to them. Yeah. Have you heard that argument? Oh gosh. It's like, well, so then like the barometer of racism <laughs> is like <laughs> based off like the comparison of like racism. Right. Yeah, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So I guess it is healthy to like recognize, you know, if people in your life are racist. Um, but I, I think my challenge would be if you know that, if you mm-hmm. know that your grandparents are racist, if you know that your parents are saying things that are racist is it possible that some idea got passed on that mm. is influencing you that is also racist? Wow. Right? Like, is, is that a possibility? Mm. Um, and if so, let's, it's, let's explore that. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I think it's so interesting that white folks are so afraid of being called racist Because for such a long time in this country, it wasn't something to be ashamed of. Hmm. You know, like that's that's why grandpa is so racist, because (laughs) when he was was praised perfectly normal. Yeah, like it was perfectly normal, (laughs) like not in any way unusual or something to be regretted or, you know, like it Mm -hmm. was perfectly normal. And so... I think this idea of being ashamed of racism is is new. And perhaps that's why white folks struggle with it so much, mm-hmm. because it's only been a couple generations that has honestly felt that pressure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to not yeah. be racist. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think it deserves a lot of exploration, just mm-hmm. one, right? Um, I wish there were like more studies about it and more, you yeah. know, um, because it is, a, a, considering the history of America, it really is a new phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but then beyond that, I, I think that um, the closest friends I have, the best allies I have, would all say without hesitation that they are absolutely racist. Hmm. And it's not because they're mean spirited. It's not because they hold, you know, signs at rallies that are derogatory. It's not because they use the N word, you know, it's, it's not mm-hmm. that they are our like typical definition of racist, right? Mm-hmm. They would say that they're racist because they know they're being influenced by racist systems and structures and thoughts and mm-hmm. right. Um, and they don't shy away from that. In fact, they are always on a quest for that ding when they're like, Ooh, that was a racist thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't, yeah. Ooh, my bookshelf is looking awfully white or, mm-hmm. Ooh, I can't believe um, I didn't catch that when I read this news story. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're always on the lookout for it. And so they're, they're experiencing a certain level of freedom that they're not afraid of it anymore. Right. You know, they're like, they're being brave right. um, and they're wanting to confront it and they believe that they can get rid of it. 
Hmm. Right. They believe that they can reorder their thoughts. They believe that they can um, undo whatever was done. Um, and they believe that they can do better for their kids. And that's really exciting. Yeah. It's, it's like when, when I stop at, I should not be racist. Mm-hmm. When I, I just think should is like the worst word yeah. in the English language, yeah. because when I stop at should yeah. or shouldn't, yeah. I completely shut off my heart. Yep. I shut off where I'm really at. That's right. And the only the only time I'm truly able to grow is when I let myself actually go there. Yeah. Well, I know I shouldn't be racist, but yeah. I only like even when you're saying that I'm looking at my bookshelf and I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I just happened to glance at mine. That's why I use that as an example. <laughs> oh, crap. Awesome. I'm like, That's well, hilarious. I have two black authors on that <laughs> bookshelf. I'm at my twenty percent. <laughs> multicultural. <laughs> you know what else I would say Kat, is that I don't think we invite humor enough in this conversation. Mm. I'm thinking about how much we have laughed, even at mm-hmm. things that ordinarily would not be funny. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think it is like I we are human beings and we are imperfect human mm-hmm. beings. And to pretend that we have it all together on any one thing, including yes. race, is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. And so when we embrace that we are still learning, when we, mm-hmm. you know, like that we can laugh that you just looked at your bookshelf and went, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know? But like, I got lemonade, so. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's, that's the journey, right? That's what we do. Like we point out areas where we can grow and then we commit to it. And mm. we laugh that we haven't realized it before. Like, oh man, you know, <laughs> and then we move on. Right. So I don't feel right. the need to shame you. I don't want to know who the, the two authors you've got are. Right. <laughs> like mm. I'm not going to go on Twitter and be like, y'all, I just had this podcast. And do you know, mm. she only has two authors on her. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Mm. Yeah. We can laugh and love and learn and grow um, without the the guilt and the shame and right. the hiding and puffing oneself up larger than we actually are. You know. Yeah, because the moment of growth, and I've I've learned this through like doing me- learning more about meditation. Is they always, you know, I'm like, how am I supposed to sit down for an hour and just like. <laughs> Like, what the heck is that about? (laughs) And um, they, like, one of my instructors says, like, the moment your mind wanders and you notice it, Mm -hmm. not judge it, but the moment you notice it and you have a choice to return back to, like, your tension Mm -hmm. or the prayer or whatever it is, that's the moment of growth. Oh, I love that. And it's not if your mind wanders, it's when. Yes. Yes. And so it's not like if I discover as a white woman, I have racism in me. That's right. I have racial biases. That's right. That's like right. it's not if, it's when. When. And what do I do with that? That's right. Do I stuff it down? Do I judge it? Do I shame that's myself, right. other people? It's what, like, that's the opportunity for growth. That's the opportunity for growth. I think that's the perfect place to end. <laughs> I don't want to say another word. That's the opportunity for growth. Well, one more thing. Where can people find your book? Where can they see you speak? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah. yeah. So um, my website is austinchanning.com. And um, people can follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All the places Mm -hmm. where I live on social media. Um. And, um, I'm still working on updating actually all of my fall events, but I will soon post those, um, on social media. So I've got lots of stuff coming up in the fall. So I really hope to see a lot of people. Yes. And I hope you come to New York. I I am coming to New York at the end of November. Okay. Let me know. I'm going to be there on the front row. Perfect. But thank you so much for your time and thank you for writing this book and for, being the woman in the room that's lighting the candle oh my gosh thank you so much for having me this was a joy yeah it really was all right i can't wait to meet you in person (laughs) okay bye. bye 
Now, guys, I know this was a long episode. So if you are at this part of the episode hearing my voice, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the whole thing. You're awesome. And what I want to invite you, because you guys, you listening to my voice right now, you guys are like the tried and true refined collective podcast listeners. I want to invite you to go on iTunes, go on your podcast app and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating five star would be great. I don't know. And a review. So what that does for us is the more ratings and reviews we get, the more our episodes are able to be seen by more and more people. And it's also encouraging to know which episodes are standing out to you and which ones you love, what you want to hear more about. So iTunes, search the Refined Collective podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating and review. A recent one we got by one of our guests, Caduce, on our last episode. He said, I love listening to Kat on this podcast almost as much as I love being interviewed by her for it. Seriously though, such valuable topics with so much insight to run with. Thank you, Caduce. And if you didn't listen to his episode with his wife, Carmina, go back, listen to the conversation from friend zone to the end zone. Guys, have a fabulous week. I can't wait to read more of your reviews and share them with the world. Bye.